How is everybody? Oh. <laughs> Thanks. We want Dave. That was good. Speaking of Dave, I got back from Disney World and I wanted to hear his sermons. So um, it was the weirdest thing. A, thank you. If you helped with that trip for us going to Disney World, it was thank you. It was one of the best vacations we've ever had. It was great. Um, it's weird. All you do at Disney World is walk around and sweat, and I somehow gained eight pounds, which doesn't <laughs> hop on a scale. And I was like, what the heck? All I've done is walk and sweat. Um, but anyways, I got home and my feet were like hurting really bad. So I drew a, <laughs> drew a bubble bath and I listened to Dave. And, um, and I, told him that, <laughs> I told him that Monday and he just kind of looked at me and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm secure enough. I don't know if you are, Dave, but I'm good. So uh, that's what I did. He did a great job, didn't he? Yeah, did a fantastic job. Um, we're really fortunate. We have a, 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 a really, I guess, deep bench um, just a lot of uh, really good teachers and and um, yeah, he was phenomenal, fantastic job. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, uh, he's been doing kind of fundamentals of the Christian faith. Two weeks ago, he did purpose, and then last week he did perseverance. And I get the pleasure of kind of talking about truth a little bit tonight. We've been kind of just covering kind of fundamentals of the Christian faith, if you will. And this is not what we typically do. If you've never been here before, we typically go through whole books of the Bible. I think we're gonna do the book of James, which will take about five weeks um, after this series. Then we're going to get into the book of Acts for a million years or however long that takes. It's going to take a long time. And uh, we'll cover the entire book of Acts, which is going to be a lot of fun. But um, the one that I kind of got tonight, truth, I could have went a lot of different directions with. Uh, but what we're going to talk about tonight is the difference between absolute truth or absolute morality and relative truth or relative morality. Okay? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And that doesn't, it's not near as complicated as it sounds. And so I'll go back here in a second, and we'll look at these two ideas and um, kind of talk about those things a little bit. Now, you should have a notes handout in front of you before I pray. And um, if you have a smartphone, if you have the Uversion app, the Bible app, if you click on that, our church will pop up, and all the notes and all that stuff are on there. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little out of practice, right? It's been a couple of weeks, so I'm going to do my best to connect all the dots. And there is a lot of information tonight, and there is a lot of... I don't want to say offensive because I don't think that's what it is, but um, it, it, we're going to talk about some tough things and address kind of some darker sides of ourselves, of our culture, and, and see if the way we're doing things is working, okay? And, um, and so my hope tonight is to show you that if what we're doing is not working, that maybe there's a better solution, all right? So I'm going to pray. We'll dive into this and uh, see the Lord takes us, okay? All right. Be patient with me tonight. Again, it's been a couple of weeks, so we'll see what happens. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I just want to tell you, thank you, Father. I want to tell you, uh, thank you, Lord, for this great trip that I got to take, and thank you for a church that cares enough about my family and I to, to help us with that, Lord. Um, God, just want to thank you for, for the teaching that Dave gave the last couple of weeks, Lord, and how fantastic that was, and I want to tell you, thank you, Lord, just for the, the, the great team that you've given this church, and Lord, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for all the nonprofits in our city, the school systems in our city, God, the, the, the government officials in our city, Lord. We just pray that you just cover up our, our town, Lord, and help us, God. Thank you for what you're doing out in Woodbury, and uh, thank you for what you're doing in the Northeast with the churches we work with up there, and we just love you, God. We give you tonight, and we pray that we uh, uh, just honor you with this teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if we're going to talk about truth, let's look at what the definition of truth is. Now, Webster's gives several definitions of what truth is, but I'm going to hang on the first one. And it's very, very simple. You guys know this. 
Truth is simply defined as this, the body of real things. What is real? Like the ceiling is up, right? The background of the slide is black. The floor is down. These are real things. These are facts. So that's essentially what truth is, is defined by Webster's Dictionary. Real things, real events, real facts, the state of being the case. This is what it is, right? This is the table. That's the fact. That's the truth, all right? Now, one would think that's pretty easy. The truth is what's real. Well, there's two different opinions on how to look at truth. There's more than two, but we're going to look at the two predominant ones, the two big ones. The first one is this, is that truth is absolute. It is concrete. It does not move, okay? Absolute truth. Now, when that comes to morality, how we live, the truths by which we live our lives, that is called moral absolutism, which sounds fancy, but it's really not. This is what it means. It is the ethical belief that there are absolute standards by which all of our judgments are made, right? That there is a bar that is set and everything we do can be judged by that bar. So regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the context, there are definitive right and wrongs. For instance, um, it is wrong to steal absolutely all the time. It doesn't matter that my kids are starving. It is wrong for me to break into someone's house and steal food, okay? That is a moral absolute if you prescribe or subscribe to this kind of thought, all right? So in essence, there are concrete right and wrongs regardless of the situation, right? That is moral absolutism. Now, on the other side of that coin, we have what's called relative truth or moral relativism. Now, this is the position that morals are not absolute, they're not objective, they're not universal, but they change depending on the society, the culture, the historical background, or even the personal preference. So in other words, in the United States, I think this is still taboo, to eat your neighbor, right? Cannibalism, right? That's not okay. At least I don't think it is, at least not in my neighborhood, right? You cannot eat your neighbor. In some parts of the world, cannibalism is socially acceptable, right? We're going to attack this tribe and eat this tribe. And that is, that's, I don't know why I went with the cannibalism route, guys, but that's just the route we're going. It's a very extreme case, right? So in some cultures, it is socially acceptable to do this, and in some cultures, it is not. So the truth is different in this society versus that society. So the truth changes based on situation, or the truth changes upon personal preference. In other words, truth is in the eye of the beholder. Your truth may be different than my truth. So absolute morality or absolute truth, and then moral, or I'm sorry, or relative reality, relative truth, or moral relativism, okay? These are the kinds of two opposing thoughts. And I would say, this is a term that I, I think I coined, I couldn't find it anywhere else, but I'm sure someone else has said it, in our current society in the United States, right, in North America, I believe we lean more on the fact that morality is relative to the situation. I think that's the direction either we've already arrived at or we are very quickly going towards. And the, coin, uh, the, the phrase that I'm kind of coining tonight, maybe, is the fact that I believe our culture has fluid morality, which means we've created a culture to where our beliefs and our standards change based on our convenience, <laughs> 
We've even done that in Christianity. Well, I believe this is right and wrong. And then we get into a situation, I'm like, I don't know if I believe that anymore, right? Because it doesn't fit me. It doesn't fit my situation. It doesn't fit my wants. It doesn't fit my desires. So you might disagree with me a lot tonight, but this is my perception. My perception is our culture has made the idea of believing in absolutes and actually that, that, that has become actually a taboo method of thought. How dare you tell me that it is absolutely this or absolutely that? And in doing this and making it relative, we've removed almost all constraints or restraints on our morality. There is no definitive right and wrong in our culture right now, right? Unless you disagree with me, then you're wrong. So that's what we've done in our culture. We have this very fluid, very ever-changing truth in our culture, okay? Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. This has been going on for a long time, right? So if you go back about 2,000 years, there was this huge collision of these two different ideas. Someone that believed in absolute truth that does not change, and then someone that believed in relative truth that is very fluid and changes based on the circumstances. Now, this huge collision takes place in the gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see this clash of moral relativism and moral absolutism in the book of John, which we just got done studying, right? When you had a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and you had Jesus Christ, a man who claimed to be God, meet face to face. You had these two opposing ideologies, absolute and relative, come together and they clash. Now, Jesus is the one who claimed not only to know the truth, but to be the truth. He said, I am the truth. I'm it. Everything, he says this to Pilate, everything that comes out of my mouth is the truth. So I am absolutely the truth. Pilate responds to Jesus with a very, very important and thought-provoking phrase. He says, what is truth? See, the culture that he was from, the culture that he worked in, was a governor in this culture, was an anything-goes culture. The Roman culture was. It was we think about, about just how far morally we've gone in this nation. We're still not where the Romans were. I mean, it was absolutely insane how hedonistic Roman culture was, especially in Pilate's day. But what he says, when Jesus says, I'm the truth, absolutely, Pilate says, what is truth, right? Truth moves. So we see this collision. Now, Jesus made some pretty bold statements about truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am, the way he says it, it's very, very direct. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to a positive afterlife, Jesus claims, except through him. Now, we all get to an afterlife, but we don't get to a good afterlife, Jesus says, unless we go through him. In 1 John 5.20, the Bible says, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, that He is the truth, His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. These are the claims that this book and that Jesus made about Himself, okay? But let's go back to the Roman government, to Pilate, right? little history lesson. The Roman Empire fell in 476 AD, so quite a while after Jesus was crucified. Just like every great empire before it, though it was one of the longest lasting, most powerful, right? Just like every other human empire, 
it fell. Now, there's a lot of factors to why Rome fell. Some believe it was overexpansion or the overuse of slave labor, government corruption. There was this huge emphasis financially on military and on war, and all these things contributed to the greatest empire falling. But most historians, including History.com, if you go back and research the fall of the Roman Empire, they will tell you the greatest contributing factor to Rome falling was the rise of Christianity in Rome. Now, I know that sounds like a negative thing, but what happened is the people went from being just a moral relativistic society to many of them became moral absolutists. They believed that there was an absolute truth, and that truth was Jesus Christ. And this divided culture, are you guys seeing the similarities between then and now, right? This divided culture fell because they could not agree on what is truth. All right? Sound familiar? So, if we can agree, and if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, or if you're in this room and you're a Christian, I think that we could probably agree, I think, that truth is relative in our culture. I think the majority of us in the room would agree that that is our society right now, that we have more of a fluid truth more of a fluid morality. We even have terms now, right? Like I'm gender fluid, right? My gender changes based on my, I, you know, like what I'm feeling that day. That's a term now, gender fluid, things like that. That we have this very fluid truth in our life. So my question, I'm gonna ask many questions tonight, is our current way of doing society working? Is this moral relativism today, is it giving us the, the fruit that we want, okay? Well, let's look at a couple of things. Guys, we're gonna talk like adults tonight too, sorry about that. So, we now live in a culture that has absolutely no boundaries, no standard, no hard lines about sexuality, okay? About sex and sexuality. Now, the American Sexual, uh, what's the H stand for? Health Association, there it is. American Sexual Health Association. I went on their website. This is a government organization, and they did some statistics about sexual health in the United States right now. A couple of these stats are this. They say that in the next couple of years, more than half of all Americans will have a sexually transmitted disease at some point in their life. Now, there's about 321 million of us in the United States. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 million people will have some kind of sexually transmitted disease at some point in their life because of the sexual freedom that we have. Now, not only does that affect our health, not only does that affect our relationships, it actually affects our economy. One of the reasons why health insurance costs are so much is because just STDs alone acquire a, somewhere in the neighborhood of about $16 billion a year of health expenses because of the sexual freedom that we have. Because, and this is from the a, uh, ASHA website, this isn't from me, they say because of the sexual deviance right now in our culture, depression among women has skyrocketed. So this freedom of sexual expression hasn't made us feel better about ourselves. In fact, it has made women feel worse about themselves. They're struggling with depression on a greater level. The rate of fatherless children is skyrocketing. I won't do it, but if I were to ask you to raise your hands in here, if you have a relationship with your father, about half of you in this room could probably raise your hand that you don't. This causes huge social issues. We are a culture that is addicted to pornography, both visual and written, written, 
There was 110 million copies of Kindle, Kindle copies of Fifty Shades of Grey sold in the United States. 110 million. That's a third of the population is reading these books. And if you've ever read excerpts from that book, we're talking like adults tonight, right? Done my fair share of looking at pornography once upon a time. And when you read some of the excerpts from that book, it is as vivid as anything I've ever seen. It is absolutely horrendous stuff. And we have one third of our population reading that kind of garbage. We are a nation addicted to sexual deviance, to pornography, both written and visual, okay? Let's go a little bit further. We're also a culture that is obsessed with self. Several studies have shown that the amount of selfies one takes of themselves correlates with low self-esteem, entitlement, obsessive compulsive disorder, unrealistic expectations of themselves and of others, and narcissism. What we found out is a culture that loves seeing themselves doesn't love themselves. That's what we found out in our culture. Psychologist Michelle Borba says that there is even a problem now with children because parents are so consumed with themselves that they are neglecting their children and they're starting to see depression in children, anxiety in children, huge issues with children because their parents are neglecting them emotionally, right? Because they're so obsessed with getting that perfect picture of themselves that they forget their children are in the background. Now listen, if you take selfies in here, I'm not making fun of you. I took a bunch at Disney World, right? I got one with Chewbacca. I tried really, really hard <laughs> to get one with the stormtroopers and they wouldn't let me. So I chased them around trying to get them and you know, they're jerks. But anyways, there's nothing wrong with taking a selfie every once in a while, guys. But there's this thing, maybe this line that we cross. And I think a lot of it, guys, we're talking like adults. I do it sometimes because I need affirmation. Because I need someone to say, hey, you know, like, love you, Corey, and somehow there's something inside me that needs that. So we're a society of self, a culture of self. And so are we getting better? Well, a good way to track that is just to ask everyone, right? So the Gallup polled all over the United States, do you think we're getting better? 81% of Americans believe that we are in a state of moral decline. Listen to this, 56 million people, that's a sixth of our culture, struggles with depression or anxiety. And antidepressant use has doubled in the last 10 years. Now, does that mean that all depression and anxiety is linked with our moral choices? No, but I find it a very fascinating fact that Christianity is on a massive decline and depression and anxiety are on a massive incline. That's an interesting thing to me. The less we're Christian, the more we're depressed. That is what the numbers are showing in our culture. So here's what a professor at Vanderbilt said. That's a fancy college right down the road, right? A professor at Vanderbilt said this, morality is not declining in the modern world. Instead, a new morality is taking the place of the previous one. What he's saying is this, we're not getting worse. We're just scrapping the old truth for a new truth. The old truth is outdated. The old truth forbade us to do things like be promiscuous and have sex for pleasure. You know what? Like, I've been a Christian for like 14 years now, and I've always thought that like, sex was pleasurable. Like, me being a Christian was like, man, this sex thing as a Christian is terrible. No, it's fantastic. Like, Christianity has never, you know, we're going too far, aren't we? Christianity has never taught 
that sex was a bad thing. We just taught that there were certain restrictions to sexual behavior because it hurts people when we get out of those boundaries. So this guy at Vanderbilt said, no, 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 we're not going down. We're just exchanging it for a new upgraded truth, a better truth. And that's what our culture believes. If you go back to another great professor, right? A guy named Aristotle, about 300 and something years before Jesus was born. This is what Aristotle said. One of the Greek philosophers, great Greek philosophers, right? He said, a common education shared by all, which would be the business of the state and encourage solidarity among citizens, that's what has to happen. There has to be a unified standard. Why? Because Aristotle said when there are multiple truths, they contradict. So if your truth is you're hurting for money and you need a new car, you see that I have a nice car. I don't. It's a 2002 Escape. But if you see that I have a nice car, your truth is that you come and take my car. Well, that truth works out great for you. It doesn't work out so well for me. So they, they contradict. They don't work when there are multiple truths. And though Aristotle's hope was in government, we see his point. Multiple truths cannot exist. There must be a truth. There must be a standard, and it must be adopted by the people as a whole or society doesn't work. That's what he was saying, okay? So, the numbers show us that the way we're going is not working, right? The numbers in our culture done by studies, done by, not studies done by Christians, but by governments, these studies are showing that people are not getting better, okay? So if that's not working, what does work? Now, Jesus said, he works, <laughs> In John 17, 17, John, uh, John writes what Jesus says. Jesus says we need to be sanctified by truth, which means we need to be set apart by the truth. And what is the truth? Jesus says the word of God is the truth. So Jesus also said that if we look for the truth, we will find the truth, and the truth will set us apart for a purpose. Now, if you haven't noticed, we are a culture obsessed with finding purpose. Everyone always talks about purpose. This is my purpose. I just want to find my purpose. In fact, multiple studies have been done on millennials, right? That they don't really, they're not motivated by money. They're motivated by purpose. I don't care if I work a job that pays me a lot of money. I want a purpose. I want it to mean something. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus says you will find your purpose in the truth and that he is the truth. He also says that the truth will set us free. So listen, this is important. In a society where depression is going up, anxiety is going up, addiction is going up, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. So maybe we are not subscribing to truth because Jesus said truth liberates. Truth doesn't cause addiction. Truth doesn't cause constraint. Truth doesn't cause uh, debilitating effects to where we can't function. Truth liberates. So it looks to me like we're not going down the road of truth right now because we're not free. So how do we know if the truth Jesus claims is really the truth? Now, here's how I believe truth can be found. My wife was a scientist. She has a degree in chemistry and biology, and she was a scientist. Now, when my wife was a formulator, they would come up with a new product, right? So they would get these different ingredients. They would mix them together to create, let's say, um, a, a conditioner for your hair, right? Right? 
They would make a conditioner for the hair. But if it broke down and if the things didn't mix properly, even though it might have worked one or two times, if it didn't work consistently over time, they wouldn't manufacture that product. It didn't work, right? It wasn't the truth. The same thing with the Bible. If we are to determine that this is truth, what we have to do is we have to take the ingredients of the Bible, apply it to our lives, and measure the results over a length of time. And if they work, it is the truth. But to do this, it doesn't just happen once. It takes submission. It takes commitment. It takes patience. And it takes sacrifice. And quite frankly, these are all things that we're not good at. But if we will give submission, commitment, patience, and sacrifice, if we will take the ingredients of the Bible and apply them to our lives and look at the results over time, I believe we will get good results. So let me show you. For example, let's talk about sex, sexuality, because again, I know it's why you came to church tonight, right? If we were to follow the Bible's teachings on sex and sexuality, we would see a dramatic drop if not a complete eradication of all sexually transmitted diseases within two generations. If everyone on planet Earth were to do what the Bible says about sex and sexuality, my great-grandchildren would have no idea what an STD is. They'd have no idea. They'd be gone by that point. If we were to follow the Bible's principles on sex and sexuality, we would avoid the effects of porn and we would avoid the effects of promiscuity, multiple partners, right? The effects of those are tremendous. One, we've seen a huge spike of depression, especially by people who are promiscuous, especially by people who are addicted to pornography. Most of the time they are riddled with depression. There is a huge increase of erectile dysfunction. Does that mean if you have a problem in the bedroom that you've done something sinful? No, not necessarily. But there are multiple groups, not Christian groups, multiple groups that have looked at the effects of pornography and men not being able to perform with their spouse or girlfriend or whatever the case may be is greatly connected to their viewing of pornography. There is divorce rates. One of the number one reasons for divorce is pornography, loneliness, the objectification of women. One of the reasons why I've never had a huge issue with pornography, I think, is because I have two little girls. And when you watch that stuff, and men, I'm not trying to like make you feel awful because I mean, all of us have made this mistake and many women in this room have made this mistake. But when you watch those things, guys, like they don't enjoy that. They get paid thousands of dollars and they are made objects. Many of them raped multiple times, abused physically. Most of them addicted to drugs and manipulated. Most of them from awful homes and men have taken advantage of them and put them into this industry. It's disgusting. If we were to follow the Bible's teachings on sex and sexuality, prostitution wouldn't exist. Sex trafficking wouldn't exist. Divorce rates would dramatically decline. All of these things would change if we would just do these principles. Let's go on a little bit further. Finances in the United States aren't too good. Do you know what the average debt-to-income ratio in the United States is? Over 300% per person. That means we spend three times more than what we make. Isn't that crazy? If we followed the Bible's principles on debt, on greed, on materialism, on counting the cost, our personal finances would look dramatically different. If we didn't have to have everything instantly and just put everything on credit, our, our finances over time would look dramatically different. Maybe our nation as a whole wouldn't be $19 trillion in debt. If we followed the Bible's teachings on giving, and if we were benevolent to the church, and this isn't like a ploy to get you to give tonight, 
but it would change the entire dynamic of how the world functions. Listen, and I'm going to show you numbers here in a second. I've done this before. If we were to give just the bare minimum, and this is the Old Testament view of, of how you give financially, but if you were to give just the bare minimum of 10% to your local church, if all Christians in the United States did that, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $165 billion a year. A year. Let me show you what the church could do with that $165 billion. With $25 billion of it, Relevant Magazine did a huge study on this. With $25 billion over five years' time, there would be no such thing as global hunger. And most preventable diseases would be gone. Things that in the United States we've taken for granted, they would be completely eradicated in other parts of the world. $12 billion over the course of five years could eliminate illiteracy in the world. All children who are old enough to read would be able to read. $15 billion could solve all of the world's water and sanitation problems. Just a fraction of what the tithe of the North American church would be. $1 billion could send out all the missionaries we need globally, and then there'd be an extra $100 billion that we could do benevolent work for in the world. That's just if Christians gave the bare minimum, if we just did what the Bible told us to do with our finances. We could literally solve the majority of the world's problems. Now, if we did what the, the Bible said about government, according to Romans 13, the government is to be God's avenue to protect people, to put justice on people, to punish evil, and to reward good. The biblical model of government provides social justice for the poor, for the helpless, for the defenseless, for the weakest members of society, even for the foreigner, the Bible says, that the government is there to protect and to provide when people are down and out and when they're at their weakest. That's what the Bible says. And if the government would follow the Bible's teachings on how to run government, it wouldn't be corrupt. It wouldn't be self-serving. Nations would look dramatically different. If we followed the Bible's teachings on marriage and relationships, Ephesians 5 tells wives to submit to your husbands and husbands to love their wives like Christ loves the church. And if we both did this, right? If both parties did this, they would meet in the middle, there would be balance, and men would never have to extract respect out of their, out of their wives, and wives would never have to extract love out of their husbands. Now, is marriage more complicated than this? Of course it is. But in the middle of our complicated situations, if I take a step back and say, Corey, are you loving Alicia like God loves you? No? Okay, well then I need to. And if we would step back and do that, we would be able to overcome the majority of our marital issues. What about the Ten Commandments? Let's take out the four that pertain to God and let's just focus on the six that pertain to each other. If all of society honored their parents, if they didn't kill, if they didn't commit adultery, didn't steal, didn't slander or gossip, we're still figuring that one out in, in Christianity, and if we don't covet or envy other people's possessions, this last election cycle exposed in our culture how bad we covet each other's possessions. How dare that guy with his PhD that's a doctor at the most prestigious hospital in the world, how dare he have a nicer car than me? Well, he went to school four times longer than you, right? Works in a very, very stressful environment and does 70 hours a week of that. You work 20 hours at Domino's, right? Don't have your bachelor's yet. That's why he's got the nice car and you drive a, you know old Ford Escort. 
That's the reason why it's like that. And it's a sin for us to look at that individual and lust after their possessions, says God. And in this last election cycle, our covetousness and our envy just came pouring out of us, pouring out of us. But if we were to do just six of the Ten Commandments, now, of course, to get to heaven, we have to do the other four, right? Concerning God. But look how differently relationships in the world would look if we just did six out of the ten. Let's keep going. What about the golden rule? <laughs> this is a simple one. We learned this when we were like four, right? Treat others how you want to be treated, right? This is the most simple thing about human relationships. Jesus summed up this entire book in two phrases. A bunch of people came to him. They're trying to trick him, right? Hey, what's more important, this or this and that or this? And he said, here's what you need to do. Love God and love other people. So Jesus summed up this whole big, thick, dense book in two phrases. Love God, love people. And if we followed Christ's teachings on treating others the way we would want to be treated, <laughs> everything would look different. Everything would look dramatically different by this one simple principle. When I get into a conversation with someone, stepping back and saying, would I want to be talked to like that? No, I should probably fix that, right? Okay, let me tell you guys a story real quick. I didn't tell the five this, but you know, whatever. So we're in Disney World, right? And there's, you know, half of the world's population is also in Disney World. So we're at this lunch thing, which we bought one of the lunch meal plan things, but lunch costs like, you know, $9,000 or something. So we're in this buffet getting lunch, right? And I'm dripping in sweat and, you know, I've got a backpack on and just, just you know, look awful, right? And I'm tired because we've been walking around all day and I'm in this lunch buffet and I'm getting something, I don't know what I'm getting, you know, like, I don't, it's irrelevant. And there's this lady just like all up on my shoulder, right? Because I guess I'm not getting the mac and cheese or whatever it is quick enough for her, you know? And she's like right here. And I just, because I'm an awful person, I said, are you okay? And I looked at her <laughs> and, and she just goes, oh, the what? And I was just like, you're just like looking at me and like, you know, and I was so rude, right? But I'm like, I'm in a different zip code. She doesn't come to our church, and, um, which is awful, right? That's terrible. And so I go back to my table, and I feel like I'm going to throw up because I was so rude to this woman. And she's sitting like two tables right behind me, right, with her husband and her daughters dressed up like, you know, like, I don't know, one of the Disney characters, and I just feel awful. So I can't eat, and Alicia's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I was such a jerk to this woman. She goes, well, just go say you're sorry. And I'm like, all right. And so I went up there. And I sat down at these people's table, right? They have no idea who I am, except I'm the jerk at the line, right? And I was like, I am so sorry that I talked to you the way I did. And I looked at her husband, and I'm like, sir, I am so sorry that I talked to your wife like this and, and all this stuff. And she goes, oh, we're from New York. You just, you know, you're a redneck. That's how you guys talk. And I was like... Touche. Okay. Hey, have a, have a great trip, you know, like, and, and we became friends, right? And uh, that was it. I don't know what that has to do with this. I did not treat her the way I was going to be treated. That's my point there. All right, let me move on. So the rest of Jesus's teachings, again, if we were to adhere to these, Jesus right out of his mouth says that we are to be peacekeepers. We're not to be hypocrites. We're to love people who hate us and not to hate people. We're to feed the poor, visit the prisoner, not to mislead our children. We're to serve others before we are served, right? That's a lesson I wanted to teach at Disney World, that we're to serve others before we are served, and that we're only to judge people by the standard by which we're willing to be judged. 
These all came out of Jesus' mouth. And if we were to do these things, the world would look dramatically different. Okay, so not because this is just a Christian church, but I think if I were to show this to almost anyone, Christian, non-Christian, I think almost all of us could believe or would agree that these principles would work. Treat others as you want to be treated, honor people, take care of the poor, help the impoverished. All the, these things would dramatically change our world. Everyone would say that. I'm a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, right? And I was listening to Smashing Pumpkins the other day. Billy Corgan even says one time, who's not a Christian, he says he prays to God, I don't know what his view of God is, that he will see people like Jesus because he believes that Jesus treated people well. Even a non-Christian like Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins can say, yeah, Jesus' ways work pretty well. So here's the thing. This is a question to propose to you. If those things work in these smaller aspects of our life, why would we not trust our soul with the God that is so efficient with our day-to-day operations? If all these other things work, I would think I could just trust everything to this God that came up with this standard, okay? So here's what we have to do, guys, I'm wrapping this up. The first thing you and I need to do is this, and I want us to be objective and honest, The first thing I would like you to do, take a step back. We need to look at society and determine if we feel like our culture is moving in a healthy direction. Are we moving in a healthy direction relationally? Do people get along better than they used to? It's almost laughable, right? Are we better financially as a culture? Are we better governmentally? Are we better spiritually? In other words, is our society producing the results that we want to see? Is our society producing for us the needs of the people? Is it producing those things? I'll let you answer that yourself. Okay, now here's the other thing. It's not all culture's fault because culture is made up of individuals. So we must also evaluate ourselves. We need to look at ourselves, and let me ask myself, and please ask yourself, has doing it our way, has truth being fluid and mobile, has that brought us to where we want to be? Now, before you answer, let me ask you this. Are we a culture that feels valued? Are we individuals that feel loved? If we were, I don't think suicide would have gone up 35% in the last 10 years. 35%. Violent crimes, up. Rape, up. Right? Are we a culture, are we individuals that feel valued? Do we feel loved? How's our self-esteem? How's our confidence? We're a culture, we're a people, to where it's not shocking anymore when a 12-year-old girl hangs herself on Facebook Live. It happened twice in one month. It's not shocking when Chris Cornell comes up dead or all these other people who are taking their lives. We're not even shocked by it anymore because we're a nation that is riddled with low self-esteem. We don't value ourselves. We don't value each other. We don't have confidence. What do our families look like? How's the nuclear family holding up? Again, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you are from a broken home? Don't, don't do it. It'd be more than half of us in the room. How many of you have a missing parent in your life? How many of you have broken relationships 
with your siblings? How are our marriages looking? There's just as many divorces in Christian churches as there are in secular circles. How is that working? How are our personal relationships? What do our hearts and souls look like? How are we doing? How has our choices, how has us determining our own path, how is that working out for us? Okay? This is my truth. And I think if we're all honest, it is the truth. The fact of the matter is this, is the path we are on is not working as a culture and society or for the individual. And I believe all the numbers show that. When you research it and you study it, when you see the depression, anxiety, suicide, violent crimes, rape, when you see the degradation of morality in our culture, I think the numbers show us that the path we are on is not working. People are more depressed, people are more anxious, people are more confused, and I don't mean this derogatory. We live in a society to where we don't even know what pronoun to address ourselves as. And I don't mean that to make fun of anyone. But I'm saying we are so confused. We are so angry. We are so selfish. And our communities, our city, our nation, our world is so divided. So divided. So I think my argument is pretty strong that we have not been on the right path. So here's the greater question. Here is the question. If the path that we are traveling on is not working... Are we willing to travel down a different path? Now, everyone will say, yes, of course, yes. But the rubber meets the road when we find out that the other path, that pursuing the truth, arriving at the truth, living in the truth, takes time. It takes sacrifice, it takes commitment, it takes submission, it takes humility, it takes effort and change. If we're going to find the truth, we must pursue the truth, which takes effort, takes energy. But here's the thing about the truth. Jesus says the truth will set you free. The truth produces fruit. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the Spirit, right? The Father, Son, and Spirit are the same thing. The Holy Trinity of God. And the fruit of that truth is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All things that the world is looking for and has not found. Which leads me to believe if this is the fruit of the truth, we are not running after the truth if we are not producing these things. The road we are on is not working. There is another road, one that we are all invited to go on, but I will be so blunt and so honest with you, it is not an easy road. But it is a road that if we choose to take it, this will be our reward. At the risk of sounding like some kind of charismatic weirdo, some of you have done everything you can to just find some peace. Some of you, joy is so elusive. Patience and self-control and 
goodness, faithfulness, and just love. Some of you are struggling so hard to find these things, and I'm not trying to talk down to you or be derogatory. It's not what I'm trying to do. But if you're not finding these things, maybe the road that you're on is not the road you're supposed to be on. If you're in here tonight, regardless of what your beliefs are, I just want you to ask yourself. I'm not talking about are you happy in the moment, but do you have joy? Do you have peace? Do you have self-control? Do you have these things? And if you don't, I want to invite you to seek these things. You can ask God to forgive you. You can ask God to be a part of your life. You can create a relationship with him. Is it going to be easy? No. No. If anyone told you our faith is easy, they've lied to you. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. But there's an absolute truth, and if we will submit to that truth, God fulfills us. The one thing that people are looking for, I don't ever mean to talk bad about the dead, I don't know if anyone else was a Soundgarden fan, but when Chris Cornell died, man, I was a huge Soundgarden fan when I, was a, when I was a teenager. Super unknown. I remember being 15 years old and buying that album and just wearing it out, right? Chris Cornell, right? Toured with Soundgarden and was just like this guy. Then you find out that he kills himself. And not even thinking about his music and his money and his fame, he had a wife and two kids. He had everything accept a relationship with Christ. Am I his judge? Of course I'm not. But over and over and over again we see that without Christ there is no fulfillment. There is no contentment. There is no peace that passes all understanding. Even that road that he was on didn't ultimately work. There is only one road. There is only one truth. Would you bow your heads with me? All around this room is communion. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's juice and bread that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you have asked God to forgive you of your sins, you're welcome to take that. We do that every service. We do that in remembrance of the fact that Jesus loved us even when we were sinners. That Jesus died for us on the cross, rose again. He loves us more than anything. Our value comes from Him. Our love comes from Him. Our joy comes from Him. Our peace, our contentment, our fulfillment comes from Jesus. That's what that communion represents. If you are in here and you are not a Christian, all I ask of you today is look for the truth. Dig, read, research, be open-minded, be objective, keep looking for the truth, and I believe that you will find the truth. And I believe that that truth will set you free, it will liberate you. If you are in here and you need prayer for anything, there'll be people up here to my left to pray for you. If you wanna spend some time just searching out your heart, asking yourself, are the choices you're making giving you the results you want? And if they're not, 
Is there another path? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I want to thank you for everyone in this room tonight. I want to thank you, God, for your grace. I want to thank you for truth. I want to thank you for the word, God, that tells us what is true and that speaks your heart, Lord. I want to thank you, God, that while we were the worst we ever were, God, you still died on the cross for us. And you did that to give us a peace that passes all understanding, to show us a love that is just completely unfathomable. Lord, I pray that you bless all my brothers and sisters in this room. Anyone that doesn't believe in you, God, I just pray, Lord, that something said tonight pushes them in that direction and they start looking for the truth. We love you. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much. Hope you have a great night.